Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. As the season winds down, I think it's perfect time to look back at one of the most memorable phases in the women's game. I always wanted to do a podcast on Boris Becker, which I did last year. But now I want to look at the counterpart, how the WTA was going through with the rise of Steffi Graf and then the arrival of Monica Sellis. And that's a very small subset of uh, time-wise from 1987 to 93 I've chosen. And to do the honor, to do the honors, I have two very knowledgeable guests, uh, tennis writer, senior writer, historian Richard Evans returns to the podcast after a gap of more than a few years. And then podcast regular Mert Ertunga, who's visiting United States, taking time off from his coaching duties. So I have them both here. Uh, have we have agreed upon a time? And finally, that moment is here. Welcome to the show, Richard and Mert. Good, Good to be here. And I think you both have a lot more in common as this conversation will unfold because your love for tennis and knowledge is top notch. And uh, uh, we can share some some memories here. So, Richard, you, you've been covering the sport for a very long time. So what is your first Steffi Graf memory? For me, it's watching her win the French Open in highlights in 87. But then BBC used to release a Wibbleton recap video. And I thought in one of those Graf specials, they showed a match she played against Joe Dury at Wimbledon, if I'm saying the name right, in 1985. So uh, talk about what your first recollection is of Steffi Graf. Yes, I just remember watching her, I think, at Wimbledon and, and, and the French, this long-legged, young, blonde German with a big forehand. And it didn't take long for her to be christened Fraulein Forehand uh, because it was an astounding stroke. And, of course, it, it carried her um, right up to the top very fast. She stood out as a, as a future champion immediately, Um she was such a, I want to use the word brisk about Steffi. Everything she did was brisk. And if you were in a player's lounge, she ate fast. She finished her meal before anybody else. She Everything she did was quick. And uh, you remember her marching about the court in between points and, and wanting to get on with it. And uh, getting on with it meant Steffi Graf winning because she was better than uh, anybody else once she became established on the tour apart. And I may leap straight forward to Monica Selish, um, who I vividly remember one evening uh, at the Lipton, as it was, on Key Biscayne, now the Miami Open, not at Key Biscayne. Um, but they hadn't even built the stadium. It was still bleachers. And it was a, a slightly windy night. I can't remember who she was playing. Um, but this little girl, sort of little but, but tallish with these spindly legs, um, burst onto the scene, standing inside her baseline, hitting the ball at a million miles an hour, two-handed off both sides. And it was just astonishing. It, you immediately thought, whoa, what do we got here? This is something different. And Monica Selish was different in every way. And unfortunately, her career turned out to be marred by a big difference. But uh, those two emerged and, and took over the women's game, although there were some other 
great players around, Martina Navratilova fading away and a new Martina Hingis coming in and Arantxa Sanchez Vicario always in the mix because she was such a hard worker and fighter and baseline uh, champion. I mean, she, she ran the baseline in her matches. And um, Gabriella Sabatini, who delighted everyone with her style and her looks and um, probably didn't do herself justice through possibly lack of confidence. But uh, anyway, that was the cast, but definitely headed by Selish and Graf. So Mark, same question to you. Uh, any first memory of Sefi Graf, any recollection? Uh, for me, it was uh, the the first time I, that I saw Graf play for a full match was when she lost in the 1986 WTA Finals to Navratilova, and it, that was rather because of my fascination with the fact that uh, that uh, WTA Finals, the final of the WTA Finals, moved to uh, moved to five sets, and I've always mm -hmm. wanted women to play uh, best best out of five. I still do today, but um, uh, yes, so that so I made it a point to myself not to miss any of these WTA finals uh, and uh, these championships which just since championships finals were five sets so I, I started watching them one by one that was not the first best out of five but but that was the first time I saw uh, Steffi Graf play and uh, and then of course the, the you know there's the um, there's the there's that final against Martina Navratilova that uh, that really brought on the um, the the big um, I mean that was a fantastic final and I watched that from um, from you know set one uh, point one really until uh, until the very last point. And I thought that was one of the greatest contrast you know game style contrast finals I've ever seen uh, with Navratilova uh, just uh, relentlessly attacking, serving and volleying, and Steffi Graf counter punching and uh, reacting to uh, to Navratilova, even sometimes turning proactive herself. And uh, those, you know, those two matches established the uh, Steffi Graf um, in my mind. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up about the WTA finals. I see. I'm just looking at the at the list here in uh, in New York in 1986. Martina Navratilova beat Hannah Mandlikova six two six love three six six one. So that was a best of five, and they went on then until. I think the last one was in New York, 96. 96, Steph 97. Steffi Graf beating Martina Hingis, 6-3-4-6-6-love, 4-6-6-love. Uh, so um, it was interesting. Um, I, th I think they went a couple of more years after that. But yes, that was, a, the, that was yeah. the last five setter. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And do we know why they decided to give it up? I must confess I don't. No, I do not either. And uh, and I, but I do know that the players did not really contest it. In other words, the, the players did not really contest the the best out of five ending. No, it was just the final match too. Uh, it was just the. It, final. it wasn't the the whole tournament. It was just the final. I think I think it was a great idea and um, agreed. Something they should think about because there's nothing worse in the women's game if you've got a big final and. You know, uh, some someone um, uh, like our great Polish world number one now, um, Iga Swiatek. She tends when she's on form to win her matches with incredible ease. I mean, 
I, I, I'd love to get a stat on how many six love sets Igor Swiatek has won. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's very disappointing for the crowd if they go to a big final and the score is six one six love. Um, uh, that, that's a bit of a disaster. So that prevents that happening. And uh, I think it's something the WTA should think about again. Absolutely. So there you go. So that paves uh, my next question, which I have in mind for Richard, is uh, what was the press room like when the arrival of Graf? I know you've covered the sport. I've said this already from uh, from a long time. So how was the WTA different for a young listener who's tuning in today than, say, uh, the days of uh, Navratilova uh, and Graf? Everett was still around and Sabatini. So any recollections and any major differences? Well, I mean, oh, it's difficult. Back in those days, it was much easier, I think, especially, well, maybe especially, but certainly on the WTA tour, um, for the media, the, the journalists covering the tour to get to know the players. Uh, I mean, I remember, I think, Mike Dixon of the Daily Mail, who's been at it a long time now. I think he took Steffi Graf out to dinner in Brighton. Um, or asked her out to dinner or something. There was some story he, he would be able to tell you. But, I mean, it was possible to get that close to the players. I mean, I come from a generation which is completely different, where there was uh, just me and a couple of other guys occasionally on the tour, and the players had no coaches, no wives, no girlfriends, no physios, nothing. And so my dinner companions on the WCT tour throughout Europe one year were Rod Laver, Fred Stolle, uh, Marty Reeson, uh, Arthur Ashe, uh, because there was no one else. And, and we all used to have dinner together every night. And it, that was just a completely different world. But uh, the era we're talking about, it was starting to change a bit, but it was much easier for um, the media to get to know the, the players as people, and it's one of the big problems I have today with uh, a lot of tournaments starting to challenge ITWA, International Tennis Writers Association, of which I helped found, um, and has been going for over 20 years. And we, we did it so that um, the player lounges could be open to real tennis writers not just the media generally where you get gossip columnists and some scandal writers in there, but people who write about tennis as their prime profession. And we laid down very strict rules. In fact, we did the tournament's job for them. We said, don't worry about who is going to come into your lounge because we will police it. And we, you, have to be, uh, you have to attend 14 tournaments a year it tennis writing has to be your primary source of income. If you misbehave in any way, and we've had maybe two or three um, situations where that has happened, we will take care of it. We will throw the guy out of the association. And generally, for a very long time, it has worked so perfectly that I have never seen a contretemps or a row or argument erupt in a player lounge between a journalist and a player. But now, uh, COVID, of course, changed all that. 
and there were very valid reasons for not allowing people into other areas of a tournament. And I'm afraid that Amelie Moresmo, who I think is terrific and I'm a big fan, she took over uh, as tournament director of Roland Garros this year and obviously wanting to be extra careful not to upset players, which I understand, she uh, banned us from being in the players' restaurant and that whole area where there's a sort of lounge and part restaurant. And she made available another place somewhere else where the players don't go. So the whole thing was a disaster from our point of view, because if you can't get into a player's lounge just to ask that uh, quick question of a coach primarily, because they're always available in that area, uh, or just to be able to stand in line, to get a coffee with a guy and talk about it. You know, did you see Arsenal's match yesterday? And are you a Chelsea fan? That, nothing to do with the game, but just to get to know them as human beings. And what I can't get through to some people in the game is that making a separation between us is worse for the player than the journalist. We can always get a story, uh, you know, embellish something, God forbid, make something up in desperation. But if we don't know a player as a person and they misbehave or do something terrible or have a terrible day and lose six love, six one, we are likely to be much harsher on them if we don't know who they are. If we've met them a couple of weeks ago and chatted about how their sister is joining the tour and just anything personal between two normal human beings, then you tend, because you're a human being yourself, to write more sympathetically. So the person who gains out of what Itwa stands for and having some informal integration between players and press primarily is the player. And, you know, I, I defy anybody to tell me that I'm wrong. No, I think you're spot on and Mert can weigh on this. This is a very interesting topic. So I'll throw this back to you and then Mert can weigh in. Could it be there is a, we live in a different world. Like you said, you are coming from a different generation when things were necessarily more pure, but also more organic. So could it be for the protection of players because there's so many voices in there? There's a disruption of the industry. They are like, uh, like you said, gossip journalists and they're like, you know, new voices. So could it be just so the trust is protected? But you're, I see your point. Like if you take away that common ground where you can build trust, you're taking away uh, this whole function. So Mert, you know, you've been there as a coach yourself uh, and a press uh, person for the you know, Turkish Dunyasi magazine, Tennis Dunyasi. And uh, so you've worn both hats. So do you tell your player, if your player gets that, to be wary of the media, but you are also been media? What's the balancing act for you to what Richard said? Um, R Richard is uh, is speaking from the heart and, and he's, he's making good points. And I believe, the, the you know, he has uh, decades of the experience. And during his, um, during throughout his years, I'm sure there were, a lot of periods where the media was or, or the main tennis writers were had had the 
excuse me, great intentions and wanted to get more interest in the player. But I would I would dispute that today, um, allowing any and all, not any and all, of course, but uh, but but certain media people into the lounge. I would dispute that the players see it the way that Richard sees it. And uh, yes, there is weariness among players when they're sitting in the lounge and they see media people just roaming around uh, freely because they feel like that's one sacred place where they can share stories and laugh and talk. And a lot, and, and sometimes there are, uh, there's always a bad apple or two in every, in any group. And, uh, and some media person who may overhear that conversation may run away with it and they are weary of it. And yes, coaches, then the players surroundings, uh, people playing people around the player, their team, so to speak, does warn do warn them about uh, about you know if if they're sitting in the lounge and they see a media person hanging around to watch out what they're saying. So uh, yes, there is that uh, that awareness, unfortunately. That uh, but you know if um, if like Richard said, you know they they're they're you they're policing themselves. Richard, you're, you I'm sure you are um, doing a great job of policing yourself. Is I'm just not sure if uh, if that's possible. I mean, we're talking about you know tennis players not being able to unite and form a group and and talk about it. But you know, the same must be true of the media, where not necessarily everybody's on the same page. And uh, so I'm giving you the players' perspective. They mm-hmm. have a they have a different perspective than what 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 Richard has has just now offered. But I'm talking, of course, about today. You know, I'm talking about the last uh, five to six years. Uh, but back in the back back in the eighties, nineties, there and and also remember that players have the comfort of social media now, where they feel like they can form a direct uh, liaison between them and and their fans. They can hold FaceTime, they can hold Instagram mm-hmm. uh, stories, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in the eighties and nineties, that didn't that didn't happen. So through the regular media, people were was the only way for the players to convey their personal side of the story to the general public. And uh, and when you have uh, people of goodwill like uh, like Richard, uh, you know, in those times that works out very well. I'm just not sure if that's the that's the um, that's the milieu today of uh, of, of this player uh, media relationship. There are those. I mean, social media has changed the world big time for everybody, and to an extent that is, uh, I, I find frightening. Um, because uh, there's obviously a huge good side to it. I tweet, I use Twitter even now in its present state. Um, but there's a bad side. And what I'm seeing and what I was talking to, I had lunch with Bill Norris yesterday, who was on the tour for 33 years as a physio and knew more about what went on in the locker room than anyone. Um, and he was saying how disturbing it is that the younger generation just spend their life on their phones texting each other, even to the absurdity of texting a friend who's across the room. And face-to-face interaction is fading away. People don't talk face-to-face to each other anymore. They text. And that is a completely different social interaction than what all of us who've grown up in a different age are used to. So that has to be taken into consideration too. Uh, Richard, and it's, um, I find it worrying. Uh, Richard, what, what would you say, you know, going back to the, to, the, to the years that we originally came to talk about, Monica Seles 
at times suffered from uh, from her her image sometimes suffered during her years because she was private and she kept a lot to herself and the media sometimes took away to you know took her grunting and then other things yeah, and the ran, grunting ran away was, with was it. a very and, unfortunate um, aspect yeah and uh, and she so i think monica sells would be a good point to to bring that uh, to bring that subject back to those to those years that we're talking about I, you know she, she who what who who what would we think of Monica Seles during those years if she had direct access, for example, to um, if she had social media back then? How would she have used it? We don't know. But, uh, but well, she's, know, uh, I, I know for a fact, having had dinner with her and Ted Tinley, who you know who I mean, the, who was possibly the sharpest brain in women's tennis. I mean, Ted was a unique human being. Yeah. And we just happened in, in, in Germany one night. We were at a tournament and Monica in the hotel. Monica, who was probably 17, and Ted and I had dinner together. And Ted and I sort of, our conversation was, can we say, sophisticated. And Monica understood exactly what we were talking about all the way through. She was an equal partner in the conversation. I thought, oh, you're a smart young lady. And that has, has been proved, you know, going through the years. I was delighted to see her a couple of, well, last year at Indian Wells. Um, but the person of that era who suffered um, uh, in, in this way was Gabriella Sabatini, just through shyness. She was painfully shy, and her English was serviceable but very limited. And I remember interviewing her, and it was like getting blood out of a stone because she was just the English and the shyness um, took away all the glamour. You know, she was a glamorous-looking woman and this fantastic athlete and an incredible tennis player and a superstar despite that. What she could have been if if we had been able to present her um, in, a, in, in a different way, if she'd been able to help us uh, present her in a different way, but she was so shy. And then one of, the, one of the happiest things I've come across in the development, watching the development of tennis players is who she is now. She's this astoundingly attractive, poised, intelligent businesswoman who talks to everyone. I've seen her at parties. We've had conversations. She's delightful. Her English is fluent. And I thought, oh, what a shame. You, you know, you couldn't have just developed a little bit earlier. Um, and the world would have seen you in a, in a different light because she's been such a success uh, socially since she stopped playing. The, the 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 story among the players back then, uh, or, or at least in the in the locker room back then in those years, was that uh, other players, her peers, did more promoting of her than uh, than the media did because <laughs> really? every, every yeah. single player had great things to say about Sabatini. This is one player that yeah. was loved by well, every a other girl. Player. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was she was well. She is and was, but she was just terribly shy. It was sad. So that's kind of a perfect segue because you gave me more food for thought, but I want to still cover the ground I decided to because I, I don't <laughs> want to keep you both for two hours, which, you know, we have a potential to do because whenever we get together, Mert and Steve Flink, and I think you were the same, you know, class like Steve. So I think topics are endless. So my expertise a little bit is from very distant side is of Boris Becker. 
as a child and a young boy, I followed his exploits. I used to uh, cover his, you know, clippings from the newspapers. You show me Becker from a different year. I'll tell you what year it is just by his kit. This is before social media. So I want to ask you, you had the best scene in the house and the rise of Steffi Graf. How does Steffi Graf change the media room? Because I know Becker was followed by the German press. So was there an invasion of German press across the media rooms all over the world? What was it like covering Steffi, who was similar to Borg? I think was very shy. She was not big on quotes. So talk no, about that wasn't. stuff. So your memory. Uh, Heinz Gunthardt was, 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 was our pathway to Steffi uh, because Heinz always had plenty to say, very bright guy, um, uh, quite funny. And uh, if we wanted to get to Steffi, we went to Heinz. Uh, and he sort of told us what we wanted to know about what was going on with the coaching and the training and the, you know, how she was. And you're right, Steffi was uh, probably almost as shy as, as Gabby. Um, but uh, certainly the German press followed her all over the place. We, you know, that started the whole um, era of the German media getting on the tour. Because uh, you, you, you talk about Boris and, and it comes back to Turkey in, in not having produced a superstar in a slightly different way. There was a period um, before Steffi and Boris appeared when there was a bunch of good but pretty mediocre and unambitious German players, Rolf Goering and Uli Martin, and uh, some, some good players, um, but, uh, you know, a, a long way from being champions or even showing any interest in wanting to be champions because they, they were given uh, some money and a Mercedes and an apartment in Stuttgart or somewhere, and they thought, why, why do I need to go to South America? You know, this is a great life. Um, and then out of the blue, nothing to do with the German Federation programs or any help from them within a, a radius in, in southern Germany of, uh, I don't know, maybe 50 miles, Steffi Graf and Boris Becker are born. And the two of them transform tennis in Germany, sport in Germany on their own. I mean, obviously, they received all sorts of help, but not official help. They were just natural talents who appeared not just with the skill to become champions, but with the drive and the will and the determination, which is what it's all about, because uh, you can be the most talented player in the world. and We have hundreds of on the, on the tour not fulfilling their, their skill. But these two, in a tiny area of Germany, just appeared out of nowhere. Hmm. Difficult to explain. Anka it Huber could happen in Turkey, is what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I know. this, And this relates, just for the listeners, this relates to a conversation we had prior to the, to the Yes, podcast. that's right. And the, yeah. and the, but yes, the, the, definitely. And I, I believe Anka Huber was from the same uh, area in Germany. Yeah, also, that's right. The, yeah. It's true. It was, it was a tennis explosion in Germany at the time. But, it, but it, it shows you the extent of the stardom factor of Steffi and... Uh, uh, Boris, that Anka Huber, who was a fantastic player, yes. tends to get forgotten. You know, and uh, I haven't heard the name Anka Huber for quite a few years, uh, which is ridiculous because she was a fantastic tennis player, but completely obliterated 
PR-wise by Boris Becker and Steffi Graf. And it's not in a similar vein. I think Michael Steak gets shortchained too. He was a Wimbledon oh, winner. Oh, totally. Oh, you know, he was even shortchained by the German fans. I've, I've made a big deal in, in my history of tennis. I don't know if you've seen my history of tennis book, but um, I've made a big deal of the fact that Michael Steak was a better tennis player than Boris Becker. He proved it in a Wimbledon final, beat him easily. Michael Stieck won. It was a period when there were tournaments all over Germany, including the ATP finals, including Davis Cup finals, including obviously Hamburg and, and Essen and uh, Berlin and God knows where else. Michael Stieck won every single professional tournament played in Germany on any surface at any time of the year, indoors or outdoors. He was a hugely talented player. And again, his personality worked against him. He was a grump on court. He looked miserable most of the time, but his talent was astounding and uh, doesn't get anywhere near the credit he, he, he deserved because Boris Becker was a god. I mean, the extent you probably know, I, I used to, I, I was at a, a outdoor tournament in, in Stuttgart and it was a miserable day and it was sort of drizzling and eventually Boris came out onto a practice court to practice and there was a crowd of about 200 people standing in the rain and they'd been standing in the rain for hours waiting for him to practice. Um, he, he just was a, a superstar of incredible proportions in Germany. Look, I would never dare to disagree with you or even Mert, but Richard, maybe when I'm at a tournament, you are, let's have a lunch, not a podcast over why I think Becker's <laughs> better than Steak. but respectfully, I'll <laughs> leave it here. I know you know more than I do, but yeah, we can talk about it later. So going back to uh, the graph years, Richard, and you also talked about how the press had access. So not that you or your uh, generation of press uh, reporters were doing this, but I also feel from a distance that the press was pitting the women players, some members against each other because there was a court dependency. It still happens. I think, you know, the boat tours that she said this and then the other person, you know, so you come from a loss and you said the previous, say Martina, for example, has said this. And then, you know, did you feel that way that the uh, women's tour was uh, treated by the press members, some members where they were trying to pit uh, the players against each other just to get more court dependency? I don't think so, frankly. Um, I think uh, women's tennis was always written about slightly differently um, than the men. It was the era. I mean, we, we've only in the last five or six years that we moved into an era where women's sport is now getting really close to equal amount of space and time to men. I mean, I'm thinking in particular about soccer, which has just exploded. And the English newspapers, uh, I mean, the Sunday Times will give a, a page to a women's international. 80,000 people turned up at Wembley to watch uh, England play the United States uh, in, in a women's soccer match. Um, the era we're talking about, uh, it was completely different. I mean, tennis was about the only women's sport that got any kind of proper coverage at all. And it was, it was gaining 
but uh, it needed so much work from Billy Jean King and originally Gladys Hellman and Ann Jones and uh, Rosie Casals to get any kind of uh, time on airwaves or uh, media coverage. So it, it was different. I'm not sure about pitting each other against each other. There were always uh, sort of rivalries, um, uh, not between the two greatest rivalries of all time, not what we're talking about, but Chrissy Evert and Martina Navratilova, who stayed and are still very good friends, which was a miracle. <laughs> they had 14 years trying to beat the devil out of each other uh, on court, but remained very good friends. Um, Martina Hingis was uh, a, a little bit different. Um, she was um, of that era, and I, I, I want to jump to that if I may, because I think, again, people don't understand what she achieved. Number one in the world at 16, hello, excuse me, in any era, that is an astounding achievement because she did. She wasn't a big girl, you know. If if Venus had had done it, you could say, yeah, well, she's got, you know, she's a massive athlete. She's got these big strokes. Martina was a little girl with no power, and she became number one in the world at the age of sixteen. And you have to first of all say credit to her mother, but her own instinctive intelligence about how to play the game. Mert, you'll understand as a coach that some people have this and others take a very long time to learn it. You can tell a player, you know, no, don't go down the backhand off that shot. You know, they take months before they get it. Martina knew just instinctively she was three shots ahead in the rally all the time. And she became number one in the world. And was uh, it was just a phenomenal achievement absolutely so mert uh, let's take this conversation forward richard covered steffi graf and the press room environment uh, you put the coaching hat on we've talked about you know likes of martina and lendl as trailblazers you even called roger federer a trailblazer is steffi graf a trailblazer the way she played her tennis was she first of a kind according to you Yes, I believe she was because she had the, you know, she had the distinct, uh, the big forehand era was in uh, for a few years already by then. And uh, Steffi Graf ushered that in on the women's side more than anyone else previously. And because of that, ironically, her backhand was referred to as her weak shot. And uh, and this is by by all authorities. I mean, I, I, I remember Chris Everett commentating uh, in in the early nineties, in a, in one of the major finals, and she she said that you know Monica is trying to play her the her Steffi's backhand because that's her weak side, and Steffi needs to come over the ball more, et cetera, et cetera. But you listen to the to the players of that of that era, and uh, and I'm talking about not just the elite players, but anybody who was in top twenty, top thirty. I just heard Susan Sloan, for example, who was a respectable top twenty player back 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 then, couple of years, uh, talk about this too. I mean, Steffi's backhand slice was not like your other backhand slices. It did this. This came like a rocket. This slice came at you like a rocket. It was not a floating slice. It was this sizzling slice that went two or three centimeters over the net at one, uh, at most. And Steffi put all her body weight behind this this shot. And this 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 slice came at you hard. And it was what not one of these shots where you had time to settle down and bend your knees and come over the top. 
this was a shot this was an offensive shot mm. and and you can tell Steffi considered it as such because as soon as she would hit that shot she would immediately place herself to the ad side of the court because she knew the next shot was not going to hurt her coming mm. back at her and it was going to give her enough time because the other players so worried about getting that shot back over the net that mm. they didn't they didn't uh, uh, worry about where to place the shot but rather just get it over the net deep and that gave Steffi time <clears throat> excuse me that gave Steffi time to move over to the ad side and and make her forehand you know hit the forehand winner and uh, her serve her first serve was a big weapon mm-hmm. and uh, she didn't she didn't collect many aces but she collected a lot of second shots that she could do a lot with you know the, today we talk about we talk a lot about serve plus one or one two punch mm-hmm. as some people call it Steffi was the original one-two puncher mm. and uh, and her athleticism. She, she was one of the quickest, if not the quickest of her years. Uh, I would I would personally say Sanchez Vicario was the quickest at, at that time, but but mm. Steffi was right up there. So yes, I think in as a package, Steffi ushered in um, that game style. Now, the first person to give her any trouble with that backhand slice was Monica. Monica Sellers could get, could, you know, bend the knees, get under it. And with her two-hander could flick the wrist and send it back and actually hit winners off of Steffi Graf. So I can understand sometimes pundits saying, well, that was Steffi's weakness because they probably watched a lot of Graf versus Sellers matches from those two or three years. But uh, Steffi Graf's backhand was not a weakness per se. It was, just not, the, it was just not the same shot as her forehand. Yeah, it's it's a very good analysis about the backhand, but you you've gone into it more deeply than I've I've thought about it. But it was it was such a topic of conversation, and 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 when we kept on talking about Heinz Gunther, we we said Heinz, why don't you get her to go over? Uh, and she he he said she hits it perfectly well in practice. She can produce a topspin backhand with no problem at all, uh, but she prefers the stinging slice, which uh, you described so well, uh, because it served her purpose. So Richard, the 88-89 season, Steffi loses just one slam final, that to Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. Was that one of the most dominant runs you've ever seen on either tour? Uh, Steffi cleaning up during that period, yes, she had had an amazing run. Um, I mean, she was winning... Uh, in 96, uh, we'll go the other way. 88, she, she did the Grand Slam. And then 93, she won three slams. 95, she won three slams. 96, she won three slams. That period of 95, 96, she was completely dominant. Um, but then, uh, you know, we, we, we get into the arrival of Monica Selish. And it looked to me on the tour at the time, that Monica was going to take over, that Monica had found the key, which you just talked about, Mert, to beat Steffi Graf. Uh, and it was such a monumental tragedy, that stabbing in, the, in Hamburg, because the, the man, A, never went to prison, which says nothing about the German law enforcement, but he achieved exactly what he wanted to achieve. He was a Steffi Graf fan, he wanted to stop Monica Selesh being in a position to beat her, and he did. And, and it was a total tragedy for Monica because 
she talking about dominant uh, Monica Selish uh, won three slams in 91 three slams in 92 um, and was winning them with such power and force she was a an amazing presence on a tennis court um, and I think Steffi Graf's record would be very different if that incident hadn't happened. Um, and I don't want to take anything away from Steffi because she was a, a fantastic champion, wonderful person. I just think Monica Selesh had found the way to beat her. Hi, so Mert, uh, yeah. we'll get to the counterfactual, which is arguably the biggest counterfactual. So everybody talks about, you know, the 92 French Open final, uh, but you know, People like you and Richard, you know, we've all seen a lot of matches proceeding to it. So what's your entry point for the Celis graph rivalry? And if you want to also add in your first memory of Celis, now is the perfect time to do that. Well, the, uh, to build up on what Richard just mentioned about Monica Celis's arrival, uh, what, what, what gets also um, forgotten sometimes in the, in the conversation is how Monica Celis doesn't just arrive. But she also, through the years, she builds up um, her um, her um, her game. So, in other words, in each year, she has a little bit more to add to to her um, to her game and her dominance on the tour. For example, in 1989, semifinals of Roland Garros, Selesh is 15 years old, playing. You know, she's playing Steffi Graf, and she stands at 106 pounds when she faces Graf, her down the line accelerations are unlike anyone has ever seen until then. Neither has Graf who keeps getting caught two or three meters away from the ball when Monica hits them because again, Steffi favors the ad side thinking that she's gonna get the next ball there but Monica keeps hitting these four, she's left-handed so it's a forehand for her although she hits a two-handed shot. When she hits them, especially on the deuce side, Graf is always left uh, two or three meters away from the ball. But at that time, you know, Monica has a, has a dismal serve. I mean, to, to be honest, uh, she's, she's not physically developed and she's nothing but a hard hitting baseliner. So, uh, so, you know, my, uh, Graf wins that match in three sets in 1989, semifinals over Roland Garros. Then in 1990 German Open is Monica's first win over Graf. And you can already perceive the improvement in Monica's game. She now uses angles from her forehand side to push Steffi out of the court and bring her outside on the backhand. She, Monica is moving better, but serve is still suspect in 1990. And, uh, and then we have that 1990 French Open final, uh, the <clears throat> final, where I believe is kind of the confirmation of uh, Monica's arrival and her, her, uh, her upper hand over Steffi, let's call it that way. I don't want to call it dominance because she didn't quite dominate, but she had the yeah. upper hand over Graf during those mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And uh, that 1990 French Open final, Graf enters that final 72 and one since 1989 French Open. And Selesh herself is 31 and 0 since March with a win over Graf at the German Open. So, and, and Selesh begins the match with a return winner and it hits eight clean down the line winners to take a three love lead and sends a firm message to Graf. Now, Graf being the great tactician that she is, she attempts first strike tennis to get back into the match, which puts her on the board, but Selesh still goes up 4-1. Then Graf throws everything but the kitchen sink at Monica to get back into that set. She resorts to drop shots coming to the net, pushing Monica around and it works. She gains the upper hand at 6-5. 
and it gets to a tiebreaker where Graf goes up 6-2. She has four set points. But then Selesh hits winners uh, in the next three points to get to 6-5, and Graf double falls her, only double fault of that set to get to 6-all, and Selesh grabs the next two points and wins the tiebreaker. It's an amazing set of tennis. You know, we the, the 1992 final is talked about because of, um, because of the 10-8 third set thriller, and it was great tennis in the third set. But not necessarily in the first two sets. The first set was very lopsided, in fact, for in Selesh's favor. But this 1990 French Open final shows Graf for the first time questioning herself and trying to come up with solutions, trying to uh, having to get out of her comfort zone, having to just not rely on hitting the backhand slice and moving over and hitting the forehand winner. And it's just not enough against Selesh. Selesh just keeps coming and coming and coming. And in, and, and, you know, in the second set, Selesh goes up again. Steffi comes back to four all, has two break points to go up 5-4. But Selesh produces two stunning winners on both points. It's amazing how clutch Selesh is in terms of being aggressive during those points. I mean, we talk about Novak being clutch in the famous 2019 Wimbledon final with zero unforced errors and three tiebreakers against Roger. But Monica is clutch, just as clutch, but not in terms of not making errors, but rather in terms of producing winners, which is just yes, remarkable. That was, that, that was her amazing ability. I mean, I'd love to know the percentage of, of, of her tennis, which she played on or just inside the baseline. Yes. She was always pushing to get forward, forward, forward. And yes. this ability to, to produce winners out of nowhere yeah. uh, and- as a result of that forward momentum that she her whole game was built on that forward momentum she was never on a heel she was always on a toe yeah and and in, just to add to your point just now richard i mean it's and it was a baseline uh onslaught of just one big shot after another because mm. she went to the net very little i mean she went yeah. in that in that 1990 final for example she went to the net three times the whole match and also <laughs> really? about her serve you know, she closed yeah. that French Open with five total aces. So her yeah. serve is still below average. She just to give you just to give you an idea in 1993 uh, Australian Open final where she beats uh, Graf in three sets. She hit seven aces in that match alone. But in this 1990 French Open, the whole tournament she has only five aces. So it's all this mm. baseline hard hitting. Yeah. But she but like I said, she did add to. Um, to, to her game from the baseline, these angle shots, forehand slice, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. these moon balls once in a while to break the rhythm. So she's adding to her game little yeah. by little. And uh, well, she was very bright. I mean, she was a very intelligent player, wasn't she? I exactly. Mean, that, that, exactly. Uh, that is always a factor that, you know, we don't talk about enough. The, the, the brain, what's going on in the brain, you know, du- during a match. And uh, it has a decisive uh, impact on the result, obviously. Yeah, and and this all, by the way, culminates in the comes together in the 1991 season. You know, she she has this fantastic 1991 season. She reached the finals of every tournament that she played. She played 16 tournaments and reaches the final of in 10 of them. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, she reaches the final all of them, wins 10 of them, including three majors. And uh, and and it's just it's just a crazy match. It's just a crazy record. And again, yeah, you know, this 1991, 1992. Now the serve is better. It's no longer in the dismal below average category. She's she's actually setting up play well with her first serve at least. Yeah. She's able to handle taking the ball earlier 
on hard courts even earlier. Yeah. You know, so it's it's just she added, she just kept adding every year to her game. And who knows where it would have gone had it not been for the unfortunate incident that uh, yeah. that Richard brought up. No, those are excellent points. And Mert, from a total fan's vantage point, I was in the Navratilova corner, so I was rooting for a Steffi Graf loss, which rarely happened. So in context to that match, if you do the math, coming to the French Open final, Graf won eight of the last nine majors, and the only loss was against Sanchez Vicario in a very closely contested 89 Roland Garros final. And with all respect to Arancha, I still think that match was played on Steffi's terms. Steffi, most days, would have won that match. But against mm-hmm. Monica, when that 1990 match happened, the winners you're talking about, we were like, our jaw dropped that someone can do this to Steffi Graf. Mm-hmm. You know, she was beating her fair and square. And it was not like Steffi wasn't able to play her best tennis. Steffi had to find ways to stay in the match. In a lot of ways, uh, it was Roger Rafa before Roger Rafa ever happened because Roger mm-hmm. was Steffi dominating, guns blazing. Yeah. And then comes this incredible matchup issue that whatever worked against the field didn't work against this player. Yeah. So, yeah. so Richard... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Mert. Yeah, I just wanted to add one more thing. Since we're talking about Celis's ability to produce winners, you know, there's that uh, uh, the, there's that 1992 semifinals uh, against Sabatini before mm. she be, before she won that 10-8 thriller against uh, Graf in the finals, and and Sabatini came into that tournament, I believe, having having beaten Steffi in the Rome finals, and mm-hmm. they end up matching playing each other in 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 the semifinals, and Sabatini goes up four two in the third set. And you think that, uh, you know, Sabatini has this wrapped up. And then in the next 14 points, Celes wins the 12 of them, producing winners on 10 of them. So she all of a sudden from 4-2, she goes yeah. up to 5-4 uh, in a span of 14 points, 10 of which she wins by straight winners. And even Sabatini, after the match, admitted, I have no idea what happened. I thought she was tired. And uh, and, I, and yeah. I had the match. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm just seeing winners going left and right you know, by me. And, and I, I don't think we've ever seen that until that point. And I don't think we'll ever yeah. see that again. This, this ability to produce winners at the, at, at the most clutch points. Absolutely. She was a real force. She, she was a special kind of force in tennis, which we hadn't seen. So Richard, again, that's one of the biggest rivalries that the sport was got deprived of. But as someone who had the best seat in the house covering the sport, did you enjoy covering those battles? I mean, did you sense this is the new Chris Martina or this is the first of a kind because they both were baseliners unless, unlike Martina and Chris at least had the serve and volley versus the baseline game. What was, you know, your recollection of that rivalry? And Yeah, no, it, 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 it was great to watch because both in their very different ways were great athletes, great players. Steffi had this style which was very pleasing on the eye to watch. And and Monica was this, this combustible force that <laughs> just a bundle of energy that it, it, she created energy around her, and um, the rivalry was great. Um, it it wasn't um, uh, it it wasn't boring in any way just because it wasn't serve and volley. It, it was the modern version of of Chrissy and Martina, um, but it was it was fascinating, and, and as I said total tragedy that it wasn't allowed to develop as it should have developed and that, did they get uh, on did they get on well Steffi and Monica or were they just fierce rivals uh, how was their demeanor I, I don't off think court they, Mert might know better than me I don't think they were great pals were they 
Well, uh, I do know this, although this is probably a sign of the times too. Back then in any of those matches that they played in the post-match microphone talk to the crowd, I don't remember Monica Seles congratulating Graf once. Like, you know, they, 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 for example, in that 10-8 French Open yeah. final, Monica yeah. did say it was a great match. We both deserve to win, et cetera. But I don't remember Monica ever saying, I'd like to congratulate Steffi for reaching the finals, or I'd like to congratulate uh, Steffi for winning cookie, the title. You know? she, but, she uh, but, but neither did Steffi, by the way, except uh, I, I do, I, she did do it in the 1993 Australian Open final. When she lost, she said, I'd like to congratulate Monica on her run. Mm. But that may be a sign of the times. I'm not sure. Today, that's one of the first things that players say. But maybe Always, back then yeah. it wasn't it yeah. wasn't that common that players, you know, right after the match on the court with the other players standing next to them. I'm not sure if that was common practice to just simply say, mm. oh, I'd like to congratulate you on your run. But uh, that's that was the deal between uh, on the as far as on the court uh, yeah. post-match yeah. talks go. That was I the think, deal. I think uh, I'll wing this one. I don't have any backing, but what vague recollection is. And of course, that time watching tennis in India. We were dependent on the newspaper for the quotes because as soon as the match ended, it was boom, back. We only had one channel. But what I remember was Graf wasn't too gracious in the beginning when Stella started beating her. So I think what you're saying, Mert, could have been a function of a champion's ego getting hurt. I thought Steffi was mm-hmm. short in the first two instances. And then, you know, by the time 92 rolled around, they were proper rivals, I think, and maybe Monica not acknowledging. But again, that's a very small, small sample site. Well, they might have acknowledged. You it's know, true that, but but it is the at the same time true that uh, in other interviews that they had privately, they they did talk highly of each other, and uh, and 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 Steffi was one of the first ones to visit Monica in hospital when uh, mm, when, when the stabbing occurred. Yeah. So yeah, 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 you're right. And I think it's a, it's a question for you both. Of course, no words can even begin to summarize how Celis's career was taken away from her. It's such unfortunate thing. But at the same time, I don't want to say spare a thought for Steffi, but for even her, that's probably the worst case scenario that that lunatic had to be Steffi Graf's fan. It's just not yes. an easy way yeah. to be, yeah. to be, you know, part of a narrative, a part of an actual act that you had no control over. Yeah, I'd, just like, like... <laughs> I'd like to ask Richard if that, that ever came up with Steffi Graf uh, press conferences back then, you know, if they asked, don't, do you feel any kind of a, uh, you know, the, the responsibility for what happened, et cetera. I mean, that's a that to my mind, that would be a really tough question to ask. And I don't think anybody had the guts to, to ask that. Yeah, that's what I would think so too. <laughs> I mean, really that's, don't. Uh, it was yeah. it was such a tragedy for in totally different ways. It was such a tragedy for both players. Yeah. Um, yeah and uh, Steffi is a very sensitive person. She obviously, by going to the hospital, she she showed you know how uh, upset she was by the incident. And the empathy she showed to to, to Monica, but um, it it was a fact because they're such different people with such different styles, and um, it was just as I say a big tragedy. Sorry, so again, go ahead, Mark. No, I was just going to say I don't know if you're going to bring it up anymore. That ten eight. Um, yeah, it's coming. You know, in the in the third. Okay, go ahead. I'll let you. I'll let you go over. No, so again. Is that the showpiece match of the rivalry? I know six four seven six final in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. you said is better quality tennis, but a lot of time yeah. the theater that we talk about the scene the scene was getting set for the ninety two third set because I think Raf was an underdog in that final, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Celis was all guns blazing. So mm-hmm. and that's a match I became a Steffi Graf fan because 
my father was all zealous and i always now i'm realizing since i missed him so much i always started rooting against the player he was rooting argentina football i became a germany fan we yeah, both yeah. were monica sellers fans till he became a bigger monica fans so i said okay i'm going to be steffi fan but again that's a personal tidbit but do you think is that match the center piece of the rivalry mert and then same question for you richard i would say yes because of that third set that third set was phenomenal and, uh, yeah, and, and there yeah. there were uh, you know i i just talked about the 1990 final but that the, and and i put that ahead because it's a turning point in their rivalry at that time and mm-hmm. it was great quality tennis for two sets yes but the third set of uh, of this final takes the cake i mean that's uh, you know it, it's a uh, it's an incredible uh, final uh, monica has a point to go up 5-2 in the third two breaks mm-hmm. and steffi produces an outrageous forehand winner and then monica has four more match points at 5 uh, at 5-3 four match points rather at 5-3 and steffi produces winners on all on all of them <laughs> yeah. and and then and i think uh uh celes before she won on her sixth match point had one more match point in that 9-8 game which steffi also says with a winner so and and you and you had these Now the standard seven, of tennis was breathtaking yeah, yeah, yeah. it was incredible i mean there you had these 17 18 19 20 21 shot rallies that where you said several times through the rally oh wow oh that's mm. oh my mm. god how did she get that back you know you just kept yeah. going oh 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 through the rallies and and that was just two champions in my opinion at the at the at the peak of their level going at each other i know that steffi won the golden slam uh, the the grand slam and the golden slam in uh, mm. in 19, 1988 but i thought steffi in 1992 was playing her best tennis in that match and monica finally had an answer for everything but that 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 third set was just simply phenomenal yeah agree so richard the 92 final at wimbledon steffi graf gets back to sellers in a very clinical performance but the sellers fans like my father and others were of the opinion that the wimbledon committee came down hard on sellers's grunting so she wasn't grunting and that's why she wasn't the same player so you think not able to grunt during that wimbledon was a big reason for that lopsider final we got Mert would be much more expert at this than me because I'm I never I really don't know the answer about the grunting because it obviously isn't necessary but does it help and I think it's true in some cases that it probably does Maria Sharapova will tell you that it was just a natural thing for her and and she didn't even know she was doing it and So I'll hand over to Mert. I mean, does it help? I think if Monica Seles Seles played today, this would not even be a point of discussion. There are so many grunters out there. And mm. uh as far as does it help? I don't know if it helped Monica or not, but I can tell you that it did not help Jimmy Connors much that he was grounding so loud on his, on his serves. That was one of his weakest shots actually. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's but but I think it's just a personal choice. I'm not even sure that that this should be discussed i mean as long as it's not something completely outrageous lasting for four seconds you know yeah. it's 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 it should not be an issue of discussion it's you you exert an incredible amount of effort as you hit the shot on yeah. some shots more than others so i think uh, granting some, should, some should, fans should not be really find it intrusive i mean a lot of people i've spoken to are completely turned off for instance turned off maria sharapova because of her grunt um uh, so you know in a in a in a sport where people pay to watch i think that has to be taken into account um but 
uh, it's, it's very difficult to know whether it actually helps, and I'm not sure it does. Yeah, this, uh, all, you're right, Richard. Uh, we, we will never know, I guess. But, uh, but also, we have to remember that grunting became more common in the 90s, because in the early 90s is the introduction of power tennis, and, uh, you know, back, in fact, I remember back in the day, CBS used to do this segment called Beyond the Baseline. Richard would, mm. uh, would know that very well. And, uh, and in one of those segments, I think it was in the U.S. Open prior to the Selesh versus Capriati uh, semifinal in 1991, which was also a phenomenal match. They did, they did one subtitled Power Tennis, Myth or Menace. Mm. And uh, that was the subtitle. And this was the era of power tennis. I mean, in 1991, in fact, that year was the culminating year for it. Uh, rackets were getting bigger. New technology yeah. and equipment allowed for it. Carrier yeah. and Agassi played a super high octane five set final in Roland Garros. I remember mm -hmm. watching that match mm -hmm. with a couple mm -hmm. of other coaches. And mm -hmm. I remember Courier miss hitting, framing a shot, and it went into the stands. And one of the coaches that I was watching with said, hallelujah. This should mm. happen every single point. The way these guys are swinging at the at this ball, they should be miss hitting every shot. I don't know how they're not yeah. miss hitting every shot. And you know, and then you had that, you know, five setter Carrier and Agassi, followed by Stich and Becker, who were just booming serves. You mm. know, and and then you had that Selesh Capriati semifinal in 1991, where these two 15 year old and 70 17 year old teenagers just slugged it out for for three sets. I mean, it was yeah. just unbelievable power tennis it was not like the celis graph matches it was that this was just two two players just trying to hit winners hit and run each other off the court yeah yeah so richard a few more questions and we can wrap this up uh, so last one on steffi and monica so of course we talked about the stabbing and you know that kind of changed the course of tennis history uh again it's counterfactual that we i think all agree if monica celis wasn't stabbed steffi graph wouldn't be sitting at 22 majors, no fault of hers. That's how the script was, you know, script got played out. So do you think uh, uh, we, we would like look at Steffi Graf differently if the stabbing didn't happen? She would be not sitting at those all high accolades or it's hard to say now? Well, it's always hard to say because, um, you know, you can't see things that didn't happen. Um, my feeling is that Steffi Graf would not have 22 grand slams. I think Monica Selish would have won more. I think she had found the key to beat Steffi and would have done so in several grand slam finals. Um, maybe not all. Maybe Steffi would have come back and, and because she was, uh, she had great coaching. She had a great tennis brain. Um, she might have found uh, the way back to beat Selish. So who knows? Uh, you, you can't say definitively what would have happened, but I believe that Selish would have won more Grand Slams than she was able to. So I, I, I would agree with everything that Richard said. She, and, and again, the way Selish's game was progressing, you know, through those years, she was still in the process of, I'm not even sure that we saw Selish's peak. That's no. that's the point I'm trying to say, you know, in, in yeah, 1992, yeah. 90, I mean, she was progress. her her game was improving in all aspects uh, every single year. So who knows what would have happened? But I agree that uh, uh, I would agree with Richard's opinion that uh, she Selesh would have had more titles of majors. And in consequence, Steffi probably would have had less. OK, so let's stay on, uh, on the on the. Sorry, sorry, can I just uh, add that, you know, I, I was in Canada when um, 
Monica came back after two years away, um, not having hit a competitive ball, and she won the tournament, um, uh, which shows you, uh, you know, how potent her game was. No, I was just 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 going to throw this back to Mert, but Mert said in '92, Steffi was playing at the highest level, and that's what happens, right? The competition forced for her to reach newer heights because in 89, 80, and 88, she was beating the competition with what she had, which was still pretty good. So again, a counter question, Mert, like in the Federer-Nadal rivalry, was it a possibility? Again, <laughs> we'll waste time on this, but could Steffi had start coming over the backhand because that was, you know, the <laughs> shot that she needed. You know, we would never know, but because after Celis was stabbed, Steffi still played the same tennis. I don't think she evolved that much, but I think had Celis stayed, that would have forced Graf to evolve further because, like, we all agree, Celis had her number at that time, even the Australian Open final in 93, where she had the last set 6-3 or 6-2. The writing was on the wall that now she's beating her on hard courts. They never played in the U.S. Open till Celis come back and came back in 95. But what are your thoughts? You know, could the backhand would have been like Federesque, like, you know, start coming over the backhand? <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, the, the Richard made it, brought this up earlier. Everyone knew that she could hit a topspin backhand. She just didn't do it in matches. Guntar confirmed that, uh, you know, just Richard just mentioned that, that she, she hits plenty of them. And, and, and she did hit it. It's not like she never, ever hit it. She, she would hit it no. every once in a while. If the opponent would come to the net, she would try to, for example, come over the top for a passing shot. And she was she was successful at it somewhat, but she, uh, you're right that she I guess she never felt the need for it, but that she may have felt the need for it more, uh, you know, in in the 1992-93 years. And had Selesh stuck around, yes, would that have been an area that uh, she might have worked on, perhaps? But uh, she definitely needed to, uh, just like the 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 example that you gave with uh, with Roger and Rafa. Yes, I think that would have pushed Selesh to, I mean, Steffi to uh, to come up with new ways to beat Selesh because, yes, Selesh did uh, gain an upper hand on Steffi. They, now, if you look at their total matches in that 1990-1993 era, it's not necessarily a dominance in favor of Selesh, but in the majors, Selesh had, I believe, before she was stabbed, she was 3-1 and one in the last four major finals, on on and that included the a hardcourt win now in the Australian Open, you know, yeah. months before she got stabbed. She, and, uh, she dominated Australia. She won three in a row. Yes. So it's, uh, you know, it, it, we can, I, I do feel comfortable in saying that in that rivalry in 1990 to 1993 period, Selesh gained the upper hand in that rivalry. But it, for, uh, for sure, because of the, because of what happened in the majors. Sure. So since we are, you know, talking counterfactual and stuff that didn't happen, so question for you both, Richard, you can go first. Gabby Sabatini infamously couldn't serve out the Wimbledon title in 91 a couple of times in that final and Steffi Graf won the thing. You think we, we would be talking a slightly different career had Sabatini held on her nerve and served that day? I'm not saying we're talking about six, seven majors, but it could have definitely gotten a couple more majors out of her. And she was a superstar, but then that would have just yeah, cemented she was. her place. I mean, you know, tennis hangs on on single points. I mean, look at, Djokovic saving match points against Roger. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, one in a final, one in a semi-final. Roger would have had two more, uh, almost certainly two more Grand Slams. I mean, tennis hangs on on these single points, and psychologically, it can have such an effect on a player's career. Uh, I mean, it's 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 huge, 
and Sabatini not being able to win those two matches obviously uh, had changed her entire record, legend, whatever you like. Hi, Mert. So last segment of this podcast, let's focus on Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. She definitely deserves a podcast on her own, but we'll get to it. <laughs> but uh, she did win four majors, got three French Opens, beat Steffi in a US Open final in 94. So talk about that underrated run between Steffi and Celis. She was a clear number three because Martina had almost faded now. So it's Arancha Sanchez. And at the beginning, I didn't think she's going to win more than one major, but she proved me wrong so many times. Also reached two Wimbledon finals in 95 and 96. So talk about what you remember of that period with Arancha Sanchez Vicario. Uh, for me, I mean, from this is my personal opinion. I think Arancha Sanchez Vicario is maybe one of the two or three fastest, uh, quickest players I've ever seen in, in the open era on the women's side. And, and she was, she, you know, it's one thing to run down balls or go forward and get to drop shots, be, be, to be fast in that thing, which is which Sanchez Vicario was. And, and it's another thing to be also fast when the ball's coming hard at you. And, and Sanchez Vicario was able to get away from the ball. Her little footsteps in, on the spot were phenomenal. So that's why she was able to return a lot of big serves. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think her footwork carried her career as far as it could go because the rest of her game, I'll be honest, was not very versatile. She was, uh, she was the, your, uh, your uh, poster board uh, baseline tenacious uh, player who got everything back and frustrated her opponents. And that's probably one of the reasons why she has a terrible head to head record against Monica Selesh. Because when Selesh, I don't think she lost to Selesh once before Selesh is stabbing. Maybe once, I'm not sure. But uh, they had a very lopsided head-to-head -head record because Selesh would take that game, would take uh, Sanchez Vicario's top spins as they're bouncing up, and she would just hit that early for winners. And Sanchez Vicario had no answer for that. So, yes, she was a great uh, follow-up player to Selesh and Graf. Uh, she, she was a great, you know, th third or fourth player to talk about during that time. And she did, in my opinion, overachieve winning that uh, title that you just talked about. But then she went ahead and won three more titles in the in the 90s. So she, she's she's an overachiever, in my opinion. That's that's one. Of, actually, that's the type of player that uh, a lot of coaches like. So uh, and <laughs> what what's funny is, you know, we, we talked about image and perception and everything uh, earlier. And she was always referred to back then as Emilio Sanchez and Javier Sanchez's sister. You know, when, <laughs> in, in, instead of we're here, here, we're talking about someone who won four majors, you know, so. Yeah, now they are known as her brothers. I don't think anyone, no. you know, with all due respect, Emilio had a great career himself with a top 10 player in his own right. So, Richard, again, with best seat in the house, I've said it three times. I'll say it again. Any anecdotes you want to share? Because me and Murder are all ears and so are the listeners about <laughs> Steffi or Monica or Gabby or Arancha, anything or more you can yeah. come up with, you know, that it's behind the scenes because we all crave for this stuff. And I, and I would like to ask Richard uh, uh, even a more pointed question in that sense. You know, th th this was also in the early 90s, Richard. It was when, I believe, you might correct me on this, was when players started getting these huge contracts and they started appearing in mainstream magazines. And Capriati and Selesh were on the cover of Forbes magazine for the big contracts that they signed in 1990 or 91, I can't remember. But uh, how was that handled? Like all of a sudden, because you have players signing big contracts, was that an eye-opening experience for you guys too at the time? 
Well, yes, we, we realized that, you know, the game was changing financially totally. And it, it, it probably attracted uh, the wrong type of person. We, we know fathers and parents who were obviously motivated by the idea of um, getting rich off their offspring. Um, uh, which was obviously the last thing anybody would have wanted. But it, the, the money and the finance and the incentive to get rich uh, came in, into the game at that period in a major way, and it affected the game. Um, uh, it was necessary. Uh, I've just actually tweeted today, with Brad Gilbert came up with something about um, this fact, which we all know, the public never think about it, but in contrast to other sports, tennis is the pauper. Tennis players are the paupers, no matter how much money they earn, because if you're a basketball player, even a cricketer today, um, a footballer, soccer player, whatever, you sign an enormous contract and that's it. You don't have to worry about money ever again. It doesn't matter if you get injured, it doesn't matter if you fall out with the coach. It doesn't matter if you get selected or not selected or spend the rest of the time on the bench. There are soccer players in England who, who get 10 minutes a match and are on $150,000 a week. A tennis player pays for everything. They pay for the coach. They pay for the physio. The ATP provides certain services but basically, if you don't play at tennis, you don't earn money. And so getting injured is a huge problem for a tennis player, where it's less so for all the other top athletes. And that is what makes tennis stand out as a very challenging and difficult career for a young athlete. And I don't know whether hopefully they don't sit down and think about it too much, because, you know, you, you can be a relatively mediocre soccer player and, and, and get in, uh, you know, West Bromwich Albion's first team as a, as a left back and be earning £20,000 a week, whether you play or not. Well, and that is security if you're sensible. Um, but for a tennis player, that doesn't exist. If, if you're ranked outside the top 50, you are worried about money. Uh, can I pay my hotel bill? Can I afford this coach? Is he too expensive for me? Um, and it, it's just a different mindset that a tennis player ha has to accept and deal with uh, as against all the other major athletes in the world. Just to expand on uh, what Richard just said, you know, when you go outside top 100, top 150, just like you said, tennis players are almost like CEOs of their own career. They have to do every everything. And tennis players have to do like things like hotel reservations, do a budget, uh, you know, find a shuttle from the airport to the hotel, etc. Whereas uh, if you talk about, uh, I'll, you know, Richard gave an, gave an example from the football league in uh, in England, but I'll go to the Turkish league, you know, even the lower teams, uh, a, a player playing in the, one of the lower tier teams doesn't have to worry about that. All, all they get is, is from the team captain uh, the, the, or the team manager saying, okay, be at six o'clock at such and such spot for the bus ride. 
and that's it. The player doesn't even know what plane they're taking or anything. They play Xbox or whatever, and they go to the bus, and everything is arranged for them. Uh, you Definitely. know, whereas whereas a tennis player has to worry about these logistics, especially when you go, you know, you might a listener might say, wait, wait a minute. You mean, you know, people like Novak and 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 Serena, et cetera, don't have pe- people doing this for them. Yes, they do. But they're a very small minority compared to, to the to the vast. Number As of I say, players. outside the top 50, you're probably comfortable if you're in the top 50. But outside of that, you're you're worried about can i make this work well that's uh, that's more than a bargain for this. some great uh, <laughs> great topics that you know crept into this conversation made it even richer we all know last... too much <laughs> <laughs> anyways i want to thank you both i think this was a, a great conversation we should get together again and maybe cover another era sometime soon uh thank you mert thank you richard it was always a pleasure